everybody for coming to another Meet the Author. We've got a great group of people here sharing their book with us today. And on behalf of Safetypedia, the sponsor, and we'd like to thank you for providing us this community space to have our discussions. Gary, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Tamara. Well, I'm really pleased this time we've got another book with three authors. The book we're going to talk about today is called The Guide to Reducing the Risk of Workplace Violence, The Absolute Select Essentials. If you've been a regular follower of Meet the Author, you've noticed that we've had a theme of psychological safety. So I think this book is bang on in terms of talking about one of those situations. And that this, of course, is at the, at the extreme end of workplace violence. I'm really pleased that we have Dick Knowles, Claire Knowles, and Robin Nagel with us. And each of these um, authors had a particular, made a particular contribution into this book. But let me start off by asking all three or one of you, what led you to decide to write this book? What need do you see that you're fulfilling? We've got a lot of experience working on industrial safety. Claire and I grew up in DuPont which was very strong on safety at that time, not anymore, but at that time. Robin was in the military and he was very active in security and he was an MP, reached the uh, Sergeant Major level. And we were talking one day about this in St. Pete and having some coffee. And we began to realize how important psychological safety was and how it relates to slips, trips and falls and process safety management because it's all a continuum. And if people are being abused in the workplace and teased or harassed, they're not paying attention to their work. And we saw there was a very strong connection. And with the three different skill sets that we have where I focus more on the leadership things and Claire's on focusing on the HR and Robin on the physical security, we thought, well, we can bring something together here and look at this as a whole picture, not just do this piece or that piece, because organizations need to be looking at this in our view as if it's a whole situation, we need to pay attention to it. And it's just a continuum of all the safety stuff. And it's a fundamentally about how people choose to work together. And that's, that's the ball game here, I think. We'd also add that um, as we thought about it, we really felt we had a very unique blend not just of the leadership where Dick comes from, but certainly from the security and the facility end of things that Robin brought forth and from the cultural end of it, from inside organizations that I brought. So we thought, number one, we really were unique, Gary. And we really felt that as a team, we had a full court press here to be able to offer like the whole enchilada. We were really full service advisors. So we went ahead and got our heads, we got our heads together and began to write it. And we wrote the book. Uh, you'll see it says the absolute essentials on the cover, redu reducing the risk of workplace violence, the absolute essentials, because we really felt it needed to be a compendium that was on a general basis, but yet gave enough detail because we really wanted it also to not to be our big business card as we went forward. And when we did uh, any type, type of seminars or something, it was a wonderful back of the room type of book. And uh, so I would add that point. Right, thank you. Robin, got any words you want to add to that at the beginning? 
Well, that was good. Yeah. I like to call it our collective genius. And that's kind of our differentiator and what we present to folks is that as opposed to if you do it right, Dick, Claire, and I bring that package to the table versus having to bring in different consultants that you have to vet. Well, when you vet Nagel, Knowles, and Associates, you get all that. And the folks that do it right bring us in collectively to address the leadership, the safety and security, and those kind of things. So that's that's what our differentiator is. All right. Okay. I, I like it at the at the very start of the book, you introduce the penny metaphor. So you talk about the head side of Abe Lincoln, the tail side with Lincoln Memorial, and then the penny's copper. So can you further further elaborate? Like where did you get that metaphor from? And I can see how it works quite well for you guys. Well, I think it started, Gary, in one of our roundtable discussions because we were talking about we had all these pieces, but we also found in our discussions that when you talk to leaders in organizations, they seem to focus on one thing that they think that if they did that one thing, they would be checking the box off or they would be doing what they need to do in their particular business or organization that and they would think that, okay, I'm done, let's move on. And our approach shows that it's not just about that. So the penny metaphor came about because it explains that there is more than one side to workplace violence and each is important to reducing the risk and each is important to keeping your people safe. So the, the side of the penny that has the Lincoln's face, that is, is a face, it represents people, in turn it represents the culture of the organization. And we explain it that everything in an organization is about people, how they interact, how they communicate, etc. what the behaviors are like, whether people are boosted up or whether they're torn down, whether there's harassment, bullying, etc. That's a very important side. So leaders of organizations need to be able to understand this piece the face side, the cultural side needs to be addressed. And if there are things happening in there that are contributing to workplace violence, they need to be addressed. The other side has the Lincoln Memorial on it, which is a building, it's a facility. So we thought that that other side represented so well what Robin brings to the table with the, the security of the facility and what kind of training, how responsive are people if there was an active shooter? How situationally aware are them? So that's how the penny started. But as we went even further, it became real clear and Richard introduced us to this that, my goodness, it's copper integrated all throughout. <laughs> so if you don't have leadership with you on either side of that metaphor, you just don't have workplace violence prevention happening in your organization because it takes leadership. And uh, so I'll leave it at that. I don't know, Robin or Richard, if you'd like to add more. No, I think you hit the nail on the penny. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, speaking about effective leadership, Dick, let me, let me turn this question to you. How do you respond to the CEO or key decision maker who says, eh, workplace violence, it won't happen here. I'm sure you've had those conversations. <laughs> More often than we would like. Having dysfunctional behaviors in your organization is something people don't want to talk about. 
So a lot of people are just in denial. They may know what's going on, but they don't want to talk about it until they're forced to, like an event may happen. So there's, you got that piece of it going on. But the Gallup surveys indicate at least half the companies in the U.S. have got problems with bullying and harassment, which leads to violence. And half of the people doing that are the managers and the supervisors. Mm. Yet when I talked to the president of the Chamber of Commerce at St. Pete and offered to do a seminar for them, he said, well, we don't have any problem. No, you know, our people aren't talking about that. Well, he's got about four or 5,000 members. And so that's, there's a real disconnect. Now, when you talk specifically about, well, is an active shooter problem going to occur here? Statistically, probably not. There are lots and lots of businesses all over the place. But the fact is, it's not zero. And tensions are rising. The COVID situation of people coming back in and the ambiguity to wear a mask or not and how far and all that, that all has to be worked out. You have the bullying problem, which is going to make people unhappy and drives people more towards irritation and anger. So you have these forces that are pushing this right now. Some of the companies are saying, well, maybe we ought to get some insurance, but then the insurance company is going to ask you, well, do you meet the new ISO standard 4,545003, which just issued in June. And it's a, it's a big standard. So there's going to be more and more people asking about what are you doing? And also, if we take a look at the incidents, a very significant number of the people causing the violence are homegrown. Someone you've fired or someone who's got some problem that's going on. They're being picked on and something finally gets to the point where they're fed up and they do something bad. All organizations, if they're treating their people badly, are pushing people toward becoming more and more violent. And so it's, is the likelihood going to occur from a statistical point of view? Probably not. Are you really having a problem with bullying and harassment? Probably you are. At least half the companies are according to the surveys. What are you doing about that? That's costing you a ton of money. As people shut down, you know, I'm being bullied, I'm not gonna to talk to you, Gary. And so we lose information. Mm -hmm. We lose the ability to be resilient. If a calamity happens and the organization is usually dysfunctional, it's gonna be, it's, you get crushed by something happening to them. Whereas if everybody's working together and an open flow of information, they can respond quite differently and take care of their customers, make sure the quality is good, make sure the safety is good. And yeah. look at all the dimensions. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue. From my perspective, if a manager is and a CEO is really taking all this seriously, they need to do something to prepare for it. Not necessarily build a 16 foot high fence around their place with razor wire on the top. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about things like, are your doors locked? Are your loading doors open all the time? Are people taking shortcuts and propping the doors open with wedges so they don't have to mess with them? You know, are you really secure as you think you are? How often do you get out and talk with your people and find out what's really going on? Mm -hmm. It's those kind of, it's, it's a, it can be a fairly deep discussion where sometimes they'll say no and that kind of winds up the discussion. Yeah, right. Tanya, I see you're nodding your head because in the past you've talked about bullying fair better. So would you like to share some insights that you have on 
that's almost like that first step of psychological safety. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, Richard, I, I love when he describes when he was working at DuPont and how he broke from the tribe and did what he felt was right, which was talking to people. Talking with the people, with, not to, with. With, yes. with, yes. And, you know, and making connections and establishing relationships with, with people that everybody around his cadre were saying, why are you wasting your time? And, uh, and I, and, and then he can, he can then demonstrate why he did that, you know, productivity went up, um, accidents went down. He was aware of what was going on before it became a problem, and he could intervene if, if you know, it was within his ability to do so to make things better for the people. I mean, I think this is just um, a dream world to most, but it's it doesn't have to be right. I mean, it just takes the ability to break from the training you have, maybe the the conferences you've been to the 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 pattern of thinking that you've had and just start to appreciate that the culture can change Mm -hmm. and it it doesn't have to take a a mountain to do that it takes it takes you know just realizing that people are people and treat them as people in my book the leadership dance, the first part of it, the forward, which is about 70 pages, is the story of my learning to change from being a hard top-down manager to being a participative manager, as you described. That was not easy. There was a lot of scary times when going through that thing, wondering whether or not this was the right thing to do. And we were in an environment that was not benign. We had hydrogen cyanide and sulfuric acid and all kind of stuff that could get us into the trouble. But we, as I kept doing more and more of this, it kept working better and better. And Claire helped me a huge amount. I couldn't have done it by myself. And uh, so it looks easy. Just get up off your hind end and go out and talk with your people. But there's a lot of unlearning that has to take place as we do that. Yeah. And I think that it's more complex and complicated, you know, also like in, in my experiences is that I have spoken to management that know that something's going on, yet they don't understand the, the way to navigate the problem, right? So they're ignoring it because they hope if they ignore it, the employees will just figure it out themselves in, in, in the, in the you know the 30 years that I've been working on site, that is typically what management comes back with, is that mm-hmm. it's not my business and they need to figure it out themselves. And I think that is a piece of the puzzle that needs to be broken. One of the challenges for me was in the old paradigm, I was the manager and I was supposed to know everything. And if I went out and talked with people and someone asked me a question I couldn't answer, I fail in public. Managers don't want to do that. I've finally learned that if someone asks a question, that's an opportunity to come back and talk some more to get the answer for them. But that that was not an easy shift. Yeah. Our 
our learning has been the manager knows it all. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, the, uh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Peter. Let well, you go first. You know, it, it's it, it's interesting. We said here we, we talked about this even over the last few weeks and all that stuff that but I always found that uh, I mean, you know, I, I think I've put out there before, like you, you, you want to go out and do it yourself because I mean the only way you're gonna find out if you talk to your your employees or talk with them. Uh, you know, and, but when you take it back to the manager, your plant manager, stuff like that too, you know, and I think this has come out here a little bit too, the, the, uh, you know, they kind of look at you and go, uh, you know, they roll their eyes or the, you know, they're trying to just brush it aside, but I don't know how the legislation is, uh, written in the States, uh, most of the time, I know a little bit of it, but I'm in Ontario. So, uh, you know, seems all our legislation, whether it's health and safety, whether it's environmental or whether it's anything, it always says due diligence and liability in it. And so what they've done here over the last probably five to 10 years is that they, you know, that due diligence of liability is, it's just not on the, the floor manager or whatever, it goes right up to the corporation now. And so, you know, they've, uh, so I think the easiest way I could find that to get their attention was, well, I said, we have liability here. And I says, it'll be your liability, right? As much as it is mine, right? So it seems to want to, you know, pique their interest, right? When they kind of know that, you know, excuse my French, but their, their ass is on the line, right? And uh, anyhow, my last position, I found that uh, that kind of attitude and, and uh, talk to them uh, made it a little bit easier for me to do my job. And, uh, but I can say that they kind of evolved too, so uh, which is a good thing. So, but uh, I don't think it's the same at every place. So, and I'm, I'm sure that's we've already discussed that. So, sure. Yeah, Peter, I just wanted to add too. You brought up the liability piece, which is huge. You know, when we talk to organizations, you know, it's all about the money. They don't want to make the contribution or the investment in improving security. You know, if they realize that the employee is the number one asset in the organization, when a leader the CEO, things like that, that equates to a great culture. There's a lot of organizations yeah. out there that are like that. But oftentimes we have to tell them, would you rather spend money up front? We say a pound, you know, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. Either make the investment up front to reduce the liability, or you can let something happen because you think it's not going to happen here and think about the money that you're going to pay out because not only are you going to absorb fines, but everybody in the organization is going to sue you. If you look at MGM, the shooting over there, they paid out millions and millions of dollars to people that sued because of the situation that happened. So the liability is something they have to think about. And a lot of times they don't want to entertain that. Yeah. Because it all relates to money, right? I mean, that's the only way they understand these things, right? I mean, you, when you talk to them, but no matter if you're trying to, you know, on a personal level or whatever, you know, like that ends up, you know, you put it to, like I said, it's the due diligence of the liability. It, it is money, right? It ends up being money if something happens. So, right. I mean, that's basically what they end up understanding. It's the easiest way to get to them, I guess, in a sense, mm -hmm. which is actually too bad, but. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Just going to so, break in here for a second, because I saw Claire, you wanted to say something. Well, I was just going to say uh, thank you, Tamara, that uh, as Dick was talking, his piece there, he was clearly into that leadership copper, copper around the penny that you need leadership to be able to create actions, whether it's on the cultural side 
or if it's on the security facility side. I think that's very good. But as this thing has rolled forward now and the questions that Peter's brought up and the remarks that Robin has so uh, greatly uh, enhanced here, I just wanna to say that there is a big element of the money, but it's also because today now the regulators, you know, it, there's no longer a workable excuse to say, I don't know. You can't yeah. claim ignorance yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and, and they're asking the questions now. Now here in the States, you've got OSHA and EEOC, the T Department of Labor. All your audits are asking those questions. Have you done a vulnerability assessment? Do you know, you know where the deficiencies are in your organization from the security facility side? Have you done a, an inside cultural assessment? Do you understand where your pockets of harassment and et cetera are? And where are your grievances coming from? What's happening? You know, are you keeping any kind of a log? And what Richard mentioned earlier about this brand new standard, which is an international ISO standard 45003, it just came out in June. I've forgotten how many oodles of pages it is, but it requires that behavioral inside risk assessment. It's huge in that regard. And so you've got that happening, but now you've got your li employer liability insurance carriers asking those very same questions. It's no longer enough to be in your little stovepipe and managing your little piece of the world. Okay, it isn't because it's broader than that. It's bigger than that. And I, I would just, just say that this whole issue on the cultural side, which is my piece of it, Bullying and harassment are big deals. Oh, yeah. And when you yeah. think about home growing your own perpetrator, that can happen. And yeah. as I think it was Richard said, that you know, a good proportion of employees, former or current, that come into the workplace as from the outside as a perpetrator intent to do harm, you've had an influence on them whether it was the way you terminated them, the way you treated them, whatever it be. So um, I just kind of wanted to bring it back to where yeah. we were on that penny metaphor, yeah. that it's money, yes, that's part of the leadership, but it's also the security big time, like what Robin does with active secure training and situational awareness, and then the cultural side. Yeah. So, so let me do that. I want to keep this moving because we actually have other parts of the penny we do want to talk about. And the one that I want to move on to is the, I guess, the head side of the penny, Claire, because you wrote in the book, workplaces need a comprehensive workplace violence prevention program. So let's assume that the leadership gets it. So now they turn to somebody like yourselves and go like, so what do we do? So now we're kind of like into the how side of things. And I know you've got a lot of good points included in your book. I, I know we don't have time to cover them all. Right. So, so as, as a summary, you've mentioned a few things, but what other things do you believe are the key messages that you want to get across? Well, I would invite you to read the book, and there are six pages in there that are specific of kind of like a checklist if right. you start doing those. But to, to, to put that right out, well, how do we, how do we start? What do we do? Right. Uh, I will, I'll say first this. On the cultural side, do an inside cultural assessment to know how much bullying is going on, how much harassment is going on. Who are, who are these people that are doing it? And so that's one, so you know what you're doing. The same way with a, a security assessment. 
do a vulnerabilities assessment. That's how you know, because let's face it, if you don't know what's happening, it's like looking through binoculars with the end caps on, you really have no target. So once you've done these, your deficiencies will rise to the top and there you have the priorities where you start. At your time, depending on how you wanna do it, what's the most important to do? So that would be the first things would be these internal assessments. The other thing is because leadership is so key, you must have them on board with a workplace violence prevention policy and they have to believe what's in it. And they have to have that in their mind and fully communicated. The next thing in, in our mind is to be able to have a real understanding of your code of conduct. What are the behaviors that are unacceptable? What are the behaviors you're expecting in, your res in, in a respectful workplace? You start there by defining those. Those become as add-on to your policy. And once you have those, it's like a reset for the organization and your, your line organization, your supervisors, you get on board so you understand what is, what is acceptable going forward and what is not. And then you train so that you have people's eyes opened up. You, you, know, you know, what is it we're looking for? What will we not tolerate, et cetera. And of course, for the security end of it, and I can't say enough about how good Robin does this, but his situational awareness training and also his active shooter protocols for run, hide and fight connect in with all of that element for making sure that employees do know what to do in the event that you did have that situation arise in your, in your company. So I know I went on, but the, the assessment, oh. a policy and understanding of the behaviors and, uh, and, the, and also from a leadership standpoint, the expectation you will hold your own leadership line accountable to. And for example, we all know that the culture of any organization is shaped by the very behaviors that the leaders will tolerate. The worst behavior in any organization is shaped because your leader is tolerating that. And that's where you gotta put your focus. Thank one you, Claire. One of, the things I, one of the things I've found is that people who are bullying don't like the light of day shined on what they're doing. And we had an incident in our plant where there was a lot of bad stuff going on. And a supervisor walked by a smoking stand, a three-sided thing with a bench. This is back when people were still smoking a lot. And there were several women there, and he made some really terrible comments about them, which upset them. When I found out, I asked him to come in and talk to me. I said, what are you doing? Oh, I was just kidding. Oh, okay. What if somebody spoke to your wife like that? Well, he said, I beat him up. Oh, well, you know, there's somebody's wives and daughters. I said, I give you a choice. I'm either going to fire you or you're going to go around and give a talk to all the other maintenance groups on the plant about this unacceptable behavior, which that's what he chose to do. And boy, did we get better fast. When the police found out that they got to stand the light of day, they really did <laughs> change their behavior. So was he a union member or no? 
<laughs> no, he is a supervisor, so he <laughs> he could go. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you know, <laughs> when you gonna, when you when you have to stand up and publicly take responsibility for something yeah. stupid, that's <laughs> people don't like to do that. I don't like to do that. <laughs> well, you because uh, my you know uh, my previous position, we ran in with the union uh, guys and all that stuff. I mean, they're doing it amongst themselves. It wasn't like from the management down, right there. We just had a, a group of guys that just didn't seem to want to get along. Yeah. But then you, but then you couldn't get rid of them, right? I mean, because like, you know, the it was it's funny uh, really needed, uh, because the union just kind of went the bat for them, right? So you had to kind of put up with them. And as Claire was saying, then you got to make sure it's your policy in uh, place and all that stuff, right? So, you know, we had to upgrade the policy, you know, you had to get HR involved and everything else too, right? But, uh, well, yeah. it's, it's a process, but you've got yeah. to address it. Yeah. Is what you were doing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think you talk about it in your book as the stop it process. Can you can you maybe elaborate on that? Yes, I can do that. It's I'd be glad to actually. It's actually a cultural element. And we all know, right, that when people get along in an organization, things go pretty smooth. And people really want it to be that way because engaged employees who feel safe, you, you're all into the psychological safety element. We all, we all want that. So the process that we use that we call the stop it process is a facilitated process and it's with an intact work group or work team. And we really start to talk about behaviors in the organization. And we talk about kind of the good things that are happening. We also talk about when do you start to feel uncomfortable? What kind of behaviors can happen? And this thing continues on until we've identified the good things that are in are happening and some of the negative ones that are happening. We have to have a part of the process where we actually find out that we don't reveal the who of it, but what behavior is happening, whether it's bullying, harassment, uh, undermining sexual elements, whatever might be happening because what we know is that everybody knows it's happening. It's not a secret. It's that management normally doesn't want to acknowledge that it's happening because then they have to do something. So what we do is we create the opportunity for the group to decide what do they want to stop happening so that they have some autonomy in their work group. What do they want to have start happening? What needs to be done more of and less of whatever? And then when we get to that point where people agree they want to have each other's backs, that is when they develop their own code word. Now we've had groups develop the word petunia, pizza, caravan, you name it for whatever, whatever it is, it's their word and it's only their word. And then what happens is if suddenly that bully if it's a bully, begins to do something, bully a person, that person can stand up right there and do whatever they want, put their hands in the air and, and say petunia, pizza, caravan, whatever the word is. And all of a sudden in that moment, everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. And anyone witnessing it is empowered to stand up and say that word. Now, what happens is that happens to expose the behavior. It exposes the bad behavior. And then that begins to lessen more and more and more. And the people do realize, yes, my friend had had my back on that. 
That's essentially the stop it process. But it also includes kind of a self test. Nobody ever knows the answers. But it's really, there are ways that you can figure out yourself. Do some of the things I do come across as bully or harassing behaviors? So, you know, people are people. And just because a bully bullies doesn't make that person a bad person. It means that there's a behavior that can be regulated if that person chooses to do that. And so that's the stop it process. What we've had is success with it, particularly in mixed groups, because females do not want to be harassed and bullied. They don't want to be put down. They want to be acknowledged. And it, all, it goes both ways, because certainly females can be harassers and bullies as well. But the point of the stop it process is it works when the group decides that the culture they have to work in, they want it to be better. And they want it to be good for all of them. So that's, that's how it works. Tanya, did you have a comment on that? Tanya, yeah. Come on, Mike. So I, I think what, what Claire just said is important. Like there has to be a desire to get to get better because if it's forced on you by a regulation or whatever, I don't know if it's gonna work the same way. But if there is a desire to get better, then you can start to get people to engage with concepts such as the Johari window, mm -hmm. where people can then have identified for them their blind spots mm -hmm. and uh, similar to what Claire was talking about I, I heard uh, that some teams once they start going down here will become a bit playful with that so that they can um, uh, they give the each other names rapper names to be able to identify behaviors of their blind spot for example one of the rapper names I remember was um, the the leader was very quick to move on, did not celebrate small victories. Everybody recognized that. The leader didn't know that themselves. And so as meetings would progress and the leader would say, okay, we're good. Let's go on to the next thing. They would say, hey, Dr. Bebop, stop popping bubbles remember we're going to be celebrating victories more and this started to you know make it a little bit more playful as opposed to accusatory and threatening because when when you approach it this way as pat lencioni says like we we have confused niceness and kindness in our society and niceness is this super saccharine Oh, I won't say anything because, and then you get, you know, you get a 17 year old who mows over a Muslim family in London, Ontario. You know, that's what you get eventually if you don't address this stuff. Mm -hmm. There was, I don't know if you knew, you realized, but there was an MP, a conservative MP in that writing in London, Ontario, who put up a viral Facebook post who said when he was campaigning, he got all sorts of accolades. Oh, I'm so glad you're running. I can support you. I, you know, that's a, I, you're somebody that I can definitely vote for. 
And he didn't feel right about it out right about it at the time because they didn't know him. They knew that he was white and they knew that he had an English name. He was very aware that there was endemic racism going on in that riding, but he only wrote about it after the 17 year old took a car and killed a Muslim family. He mm-hmm. said, this isn't, and, and now all this, oh, this isn't us, this isn't London, Ontario. And he said, God damn right it is. This, this has been here for years and nobody's calling it out. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue. We, yes. we have begot, we've gotten ourselves into this, oh no, I can't say that to them. I can't say that. They're gonna, they're gonna be offended. And I'm like, you know what? We have to start saying things so that we can start healing our society from the ills that we've created for ourselves. Yes. And I, I just too. wanted to hop on what you were saying also, Tanya, because one of the other things that you talked about was tolerance, right? And I've seen that over and over and over again, have gone to HR, have said to them, this is going on, this person is crying at their desk, I'm hearing this, etc. And then you get back, well, if you don't like how it is in this workplace, maybe you should find a job elsewhere. That's, that's unacceptable to me. And it's, it's happened more than once. Absolutely. So to say, oh, well, you know, that's just a one case. Unfortunately, it's not. If it was only one case, I'd get a, n- a job somewhere else and I'd be okay, right? But the fact is I've been in the workforce for over 30 years now, and it's repetition. Exactly what you're saying, Tanya, is that people like to just pretend that we're polite and nice to one another. And then, you know, you've got people crying in the bathrooms. You've got, I remember when I was working in retail, we had somebody's father come into the store and try to beat up one of the clerks because he was dating his daughter. Right. And again, trying to sweep it under the rug and pretend that it never happens. And I and I commit, applaud you for bringing it out and saying, you know what, we know it's here and enough it's, is enough. Talk about it. This is very hard stuff that we're talking about here. And we need to find ways to help the leaders, the managers, the supervisors to deal with this stuff, because most of them don't want to have this happening either. Most people are really trying to do well. So how, and one of the things we do when we come in is to try to help them. Let's bring our people together and talk about these kind of things and sort out stuff and find out what's going on so we can deal with it. And we, and you can do that quite successfully as long as people are willing to talk and share and listen. So we, that's one way to help the leaders deal with this stuff. Just saying, you got to have them stop doing it, leaves them hanging out there. They know they're not, getting it done but they don't know what to do we can help them with that and that's one of that's the copper part of this thing that we bring in we can help you with that if you want we can we have processes that are very powerful that really work coming out of complexity they really do work i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a question here because i'm i'm seeing something with the younger generation that is a little bit um challenging what's just been said that it's so hard for leaders to do this, to be quite upfront and frank with you. Do you think that it might be a generational thing that certain generations have grown up thinking to mind our own business, pretend nothing's happening and it's all okay? Because, you know, two weeks ago, I heard my 16 year old who runs a D&D game 
being very frank with somebody on the D&D who was bullying people, he, he called them up in chat and said, hey, your behavior is unacceptable. And if you do it again, you're going to be out of our game, right? And I talked to him about it. And I said, how many times did it happen? He said, twice. I gave him the benefit of the doubt once. And I told him the behavior was not acceptable. He did it again. I told him he's going to be out. And I'm like, wow. And then I was talking to some of his friends. They were they were on chat and they're like, yeah, it's just unacceptable. And these are 16 year old mindsets, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Sorry, I'm, I'll get off my soapbox. What I've found was, is that all the generations want to be heard, to be treated with respect, to be given consideration to, and play with ideas. And I think a lot of the younger people are fed up with all the crap that they get from the the politicians and the other people who are quote in these leadership positions where the level of hypocrisy is so staggering that you just want to croak. But if we cut through that and sit down and have a real authentic conversations with them, I think we can connect up with, with people. We do that all around the world as we work. We can connect up if we talk with people and listen together and try to understand. Claire, why don't you say something? Well, I would just say there's a, you know, no one size that fits all. I, I think every group is different. We're all individuals. Every team is different. Every community is different. Uh, and, you know, for us in our work, we're about one workplace at a time. We're trying to help leaders across the board see a bigger picture, a better picture. Uh, we're trying to get them to recognize that both sides of the, of the, of the pennies are, are so important to workplace violence. And so much of it comes back to behaviors, which is what we've all been talking about. Now, what gives some people the feeling that they have license to say some very cruel things? Well, you know, we have, we have found that when organizations don't or won't or can't address the undiscussables in their organizations, the, the elephants, the, the difficulties, the bad behaviors, when they can't, don't, or won't do that, what happens then that gives license for the cruelness of people to start to bubble up. And that's when you, you start to have really <clears throat> different and dysfunctional things happening in a workplace. And um, so we try to help organizations see that before it gets to that level. And, uh, okay, I'd like to just watching the time here, move to the section where we talk about the physical security side, which is the tail side, Robin. Um, I know that you have a section and we already mentioned it, about the active shooter incident. So if, if bullying is on, if you like, the left side of the workplace violence prevention spectrum, clearly overt violence is in the far right. You talked about a, a trained versus untrained response. Can you, can you take us through that? Sure, um, I'll try to be brief here. When it comes to my portion of the facility, uh, just and I'll just cover this real quick and then I'll get into the, uh, the, the people in the training piece. Uh, it's just like Claire, we start off with the assessment of the buildings and um, you know, we try to identify the vulnerabilities in that. But with regards to the training, one of the vulnerabilities, as I work my way from the exterior of your property 
That's the outermost portion of your parking lot, for example. And then I work my way in all the way down to the policies and procedures and the training. So if there's a Delta in the training, this is, this is my passion right here. And I always start at the lowest level, which is the situation awareness. There's oftentimes organizations will say, well, you guys come in and, and teach us active shooter. We don't, you know, we don't know what to do. Well, I can certainly do that, but we operate in the prevention space. So the first thing that we like to offer is the situation awareness piece. And that's where this trained and untrained response comes in. Mm -hmm. Because people, what I try to do is empower people and change fear, which we, we're all gonna experience when something like that happens and empower that into action, like controlling that fear, if you will. There's a book out there called The Gift of Fear. And fear really is a gift. When you feel that sense in your stomach that we all have, you know, that's what we do. So as to your question specifically, Gary, so an untrained response, let's say that shots are fired. Somebody says there's a guy with a gun and an untrained response is going to be, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. There's gonna be some folks that'll fall fetal in the corner, curled up crying and screaming. You know, there's gonna be panic, that disbelief that we talked about early on. I cannot believe this is happening in this small organization or in this large warehouse. And that's the denial piece. And they're also gonna feel helpless. You know, what do we do? The shots going on, we have no idea what's going on. So what I try to impart in my training is the trained response. Because training, we've all received training. You know, I've received a, a bunch of it in the military, but it doesn't matter what where you lie. When you have training, it helps to empower you and give you confidence. And training is a, is a mind and muscle memory thing. So with regards to active shooter training and the situation awareness training, when I teach you these things, it's gonna empower you so that you can take action. So a trained response, if something were to happen, I'm gonna feel anxious, shots fired, I'm trained. I'm gonna have some anxiety, obviously, but I'm gonna recall the training that I received. I remember Robin taught us about this. What happens? What happens if I'm in this area of the building? What happens? What do I do now? And then so in your mind, you start to mentally prepare yourself. Okay, what am I gonna do? What course of action am I gonna take that Robin taught me? And then you're gonna to commit to act. So you see the difference between a, an untrained response and a trained response. I will tell you that we just finished up with a client uh, recently. And when I start to talk about situational awareness, trained and untrained response, I promise them at the end of that block of instruction, they're gonna feel good because I don't just talk about the workplace. I talk about how we can all protect ourselves in a movie theater, in a church, because there is mm -hmm. no safe haven anymore. So by the time we're done, I have them thinking about where they're gonna position themselves in a the restaurant. And it's about changing the whole mindset. That's Robin's job with regards to security. So I had actually a question for you, Robin. Sure. Um, if one thing that comes to my mind is one, a lot of people have this idea that it will never happen to them. And I think mm -hmm. that we need to move on beyond that because it can happen to us. But what I do also notice is that um, people don't pick up the visual cues that you can see before the critical incident occurs. So can you talk to that? that a little bit about what kind of things people should be also training their workers to observe beforehand to try I love to this question. I love it. And this is one of the things I cover. Um, it's one of the takeaways that I'm going to ask you folks to take away with. And that's if you see something, say something. Every incident that happens with regards to active shooter, 
post-incident investigation reveals that there is always what we call leakage. And leakage being that Robin put something out on his Facebook page, for example. So the leakage would be through social media. The other part of the leakage is I'm in the workplace and we're a team and you start to hear Robin say strange things. Like, I can't take this anymore. I swear I'm gonna kill him. These are the kind of things that when you hear it, you have to say something. You know, back many, many years ago, we all started in our profession. You know, nobody wanted to rat anybody out as we say, you know? But what I try to impart on people is that if you hear something, you see Robin starting to go sideways in my behavior in my work, we as a team have to do what I call a gut check. I, I, might, I might have been divorced, I might have experienced a death. So I wanna make sure that everything's okay there. And then, you know, you may want to let your supervisor know, hey, look, Robin's starting to, you know, display a little bit of behavior. So it's incumbent upon all of us that if you see these visual cues, you know, change in behavior, change in working, uh, leakage, whether it's verbal or through social media, we have to say something. And those incidents, and there was just one recently uh, where they foiled the crime because somebody saw something suspicious and, uh, and, they, and they, they foiled a, a possible uh, mass shooting. And I take that even one step further than of you, you, just the an individual is saying things themselves, but also if an individual is saying something about another person, a, a partner, or like in the case of, of the, the individual in a retail store with the father and the girlfriend, and, and the father <laughs> did come into the store to try to beat him up. But because the employee had said something, right, beforehand, off the cuff, we started, our security started to observe for this person. We never met the person. We didn't know who they were. We only had a light description. Yeah. But the thing was that when the person came into the store and started kind of doing not sh typical shopping, grocery stop shopping behaviors. So what behaviors also do those coming from out of the pub in the public into your work setting have? Because that can be, can you speak to that? Yeah, so the, you're talking about the, the visual behaviors. Okay, so one of the things I cover in my training is I'll put a, a slide up of the secret service. You know, the most premier security outfit in the world, right? Charged to protect the president. And I asked the question, what is the Secret Service, what is their number one tool in their kit that they use? And that's situational awareness. Forget the guns, forget the communication stuff. These guys are behind glasses and they're trained observers to look for behaviors. So if we, if we train human behavior and how people act and present themselves, because that's what they're looking for, the person that has changed their behavior. Everybody's smiling, this guy's not smiling. Everybody's moving this way, this guy's moving this way. So you have to be in tune to those kind of uh, those cues. And those are things that have to be taught. You know, we can't teach ourselves that unless we're security minded or, um, you know, in tune to that kind of stuff. If I could just tell you real quick, uh, Dick likes to use the story. Um, well, to your point about the reporting thing, and that's good that that worked out in your organizations, but if you have a restraining order, for example, on your husband, you have to let your, your organization know because it's not just for your protection, but it's for the protection of everybody in the organization. So you have to communicate that with human resources. For example, Dick uses a story about a gentleman who came in, went to the front desk, had a nice bouquet of flowers, said, I'm here to give my, my wife some flowers. He said, sure, go upstairs. He went upstairs. He shot and killed his wife in the workplace. And they had no idea. Now, had they known that, you know, Robin 
had a restraining order on him and, and maybe a pitcher that security could identify. So when I come in displaying those behaviors tomorrow, as you just mentioned, um, you know, we could probably do something. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we're any we're coming to the last five minutes. Um, if it's anybody in the audience got a question they want to ask or a comment, um, please anybody's hands up. Nothing. Okay. Because um, at the end of these sessions, I always like to ask what are the three takeaways each of the authors would like to leave with the viewers. If you notice, um, Claire and Dick are together. If you didn't get it, they are husband and wife. So there you go. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to so, say that was a pretty good. Uh... Yeah, looking good, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'd like to ask them, the three authors because this has been a really wonderful and very meaty sort of session for me. What are your three takeaways that you would like to leave the viewers? Well, I'll go first, seeing as I just finished. Uh, so one of the takeaways that I always teach is if you see something, say something. It's as simple as that. The second one is, is know your whereabouts. The situation awareness piece is paramount. I don't care if it's in your job, you should know where the exits are. You should be trained in, in how and where to move. And the same thing in your daily life. I don't position myself unless I'm sitting and I can see a door or I'm close to a door, those kind of things. And then the secret to surviving is empowerment through training. We have to train ourselves. It is our employer's responsibility to train us, but we have a certain responsibility because no one's gonna look out for number one like you. And when the shots are fired, your organization's not gonna keep you alive and go home with your family. It's gonna be the actions that you took as an individual. So empower yourself, get some training so that you can survive another day. Great. Thanks, Robin. Well, Claire, Dick? Well, I think I would uh, just want to share this, that I believe from the cultural HR side of things, I think it's important to look and listen. Have your observation skills honed. And the reason I say this is when we go into an organization, before we even have the results of a cultural assessment, it doesn't take me long to be in a ladies room or a change house or what at all to find out what is going on in the organization. Because I can find out really quickly who's being harassed, who's being bullied, but yet the organization seems to say, well, we don't have any problems. So my point is it's happening and the reason it continues to happen is because it's not being addressed. So I always also want to sh share that you, you need to look and listen. Leaders need to look and listen. The other, uh, let's see, Dick, why don't you go? I've just lost my train, but I'll come back. <laughs> well, for me, and you've heard me say this before, it's, it's so important for the leaders and the managers to go into the organization and sit with the people and have a conversation together. Here's what I'm trying to do. How can I help you? What's going on here? And keep at it. That's not going to happen in one off. It's going to happen as you do this day after day and people begin to share. That way you find out what's really going on and you can begin to address these problems often in their infancy and they don't get out of hand on you. So to me, Sharing information, back and forth, a lot of feedback, doing it in a way that's respectful and listen, and then help people see how their work is important for the success of the organization. 
not just add one more then, as leaders, top leaders, they need to be asking the right kind of process questions out of their reports and those reports to the next reports. For example, if you were the CEO and you asked the question, where in your organization at its deepest levels are there the most difficult problems happening right now? Have you looked? Have you seen? And, and what are you doing to address them? If this is happening on the shop floor, if this is happening, uh, Alter, where have you looked? Why, is, why does nobody ever sit with this person in the lunchroom? Why does the organization shun this person? Those are the types of questions that real leadership will ask because they'll want to know. As I, we said before, you, can, you cannot ignore that anymore. Coming out of complexity, one of the things I've learned is that the deeper patterns that are going on are highly reproducible and are going on all the time. So if you see something going on that's bad in one spot, you can be sure that it's showing up in many other places. It's, it comes out of the complexity theory. And so these things are helpful. But for me, the important thing was to go out and be with the people and learn together and find out how we can help each other because we're all in it together. Right, okay. Well, on that note, we've hit the top of the hour. So I, I just um, extend my thanks to you three authors for sharing this time with us. And uh, for me, it's, um, you know, it's turned on some light bulbs, if you like, it's kind of turned my penny. I guess in Canada, we can't talk penny, can we? Uh, Got to talk about the nickel. I got to think about the nickel, what's on that. So, but um, Tamara, I'm going to turn it over to you to uh, bring it to an end. Thanks, Gary. And thank you, Robin, Richard, and Claire for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I hope that we can uh, continue the conversation, maybe on the safety view, talking about this topic because it's just amazing. I've got a lot to say about it. I used to do advocacy work around this. So I'll keep it short. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, thank you all. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Thanks, all. All right. If anybody wants to call us, give us a call. <laughs>